Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Editor-in-Chief of Foreign Policy Magazine. You're listening to Global Reboot, a podcast in partnership with the Doha Forum, where we examine one big problem every week and we look at ways to solve it. This week, we're focusing on rebooting the world's multilateral institutions. All the major global organizations, the UN, the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, were created after World War II to serve the global order that existed at the time. One that was dominated by rich Western nations. But with China now the world's second largest economy and many countries in the global south rapidly rising, are those institutions still set up to serve the world in the best possible way? The jury's out. If you look at the debt crises now confronting many countries around the world, and I'm thinking of the likes of Sri Lanka, Pakistan, Egypt, Ghana, and many others, there's a familiar pattern to how they seek help. They call in the IMF, they set reform programs and austerity measures, and they borrow money to get started again. But it's often a vicious cycle, especially given how many crises the world seems to face. There's an energy crisis right now, of course, but there's also inflation. There was the pandemic, and now there's the war in Ukraine. Each of these make it harder for poorer countries to keep their finances in order. The question then is how we should fix these organizations. How do we reboot them? My guest today has ideas for this, in part because he's worked at several of them. Mark Malik-Brown spent years at the World Bank, the UN's development program, and the United Nations itself. Today, he's the president of Open Society Foundations, where he tries to mitigate some of the world's biggest crises. Mark is a provocative thinker and speaker. He explains how we got here, but he also explains how to reboot the global system to better handle the crises that are surely coming our way. As always, if you like what you're hearing, feel free to rate us or leave comments. For now, here's the interview. Mark Malik-Brown, thanks for joining us. Thank you. So I thought we could begin by framing the problem. A lot of countries around the world are slipping into pretty serious debt crises. Sri Lanka's troubles are now well known, but there are fears that El Salvador, Ghana, Egypt, Tunisia, Pakistan, all of these countries could also be vulnerable to defaults. And obviously, each of these countries has made mistakes, but there's something larger at play here as well. What do you think has led us to this point? You're right. There is something larger. And I think the first mistake is to dump it all on Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine was a big disruptor to the world economy, but a debt problem always has a much longer tail to it than that. And really, we've got to where we've got to after more than a decade of escalating disruptions to 
the global economy. And, you know, the first was the major financial crisis of 2009, 8-9. But the subsequent shocks included the election of President Trump in the US, the trade war with China, Britain's departure from the European Union over Brexit, and subsequently a kind of food and oil shock, which was already in the works, but hugely exacerbated by Ukraine, which in that sense was the culminating crisis. And I have omitted from the list one of the most important of all, COVID and its impact mm. on supply chains and the real economy around the world. And I think it's interesting there that you began with 2008, because of course, that led to the West, at least sort of a bailout of the big banks, of the rich, as it were, which led to some resentment, but also the fact that you then had turned on the spigots of easy money, essentially, until pretty much this year. Yeah, I mean, easy money unfairly allocated. Mm. So it has critically led to a lot of bad investment and a lot of overspending by public sectors. But at the same time, it has fueled a political crisis around a sense of outrage about rising inequality in so many of our countries. And so you've got this double whammy of a lot of unproductive investment combined with a rising tide of disenchantment with democracy and support for populist and sometimes authoritarian solutions. So it's a real devil's brew. It is. And I know you don't want to make a huge deal of Ukraine and all of this or to give it undue importance. But as sort of the last thing in this uh, multitude of crises, it was kind of a tipping point for many countries. I mean, Sri Lanka in particular. Absolutely. And I, in that meant, mean do, sense, don't mean to diminish it because it's a stunning blow against the international order, the breach of the cardinal rule of international relations, thou shalt not invade thy smaller neighbor without good cause. So in that sense, for a P5 member to do it in the way that President Putin's Russia did this, you know, really shocked confidence in the international system in a very profound way. You know, it signaled to markets potential food shortages, which has driven up prices in dramatic ways. It signaled to the markets that the non-availability of Russian gas, that sanctions against Russian oil will drive up oil and gas prices, and indeed has. And against that, inevitably, the impact on debt levels where countries increased import bills for oil and food is increasing levels of debt. Mm. And, you know, it really risks breaking into some quite hostile nationalist blocks. And again, Ukraine's the trigger for that, the geopolitical trigger that makes people concerned about Taiwan and China, makes people afraid that the world is going to divide into rival hostile trading blocks. And so, so many of the certainties of 10, 15 years ago uh, seem today to be replaced by a kind of much darker prospects for the future. And it's, uh, you know, amid all of this, um, of course, because of COVID, so many of these countries, especially in the global south, were already depleted. They'd spent a lot of money just literally trying to stay afloat uh, to subsidize lost incomes and the like. And of course, there were shutdowns which impacted trade and, and the economy for them. One way of sort of looking at what defines a rich country and what defines a poor country is essentially their ability to raise capital. 
And when you have crises, it seems like that distinction is even more stark. Talk us through a little bit about the current moment. So if you are a country that is a low-income country today, how hard is it to sort of deal with crises? How hard is it to seek help? Well, 60% of low-income countries face debt stress today. You know, the story for poor countries during the crisis was that there was some remarkable credit provision made for them Mm -hmm. uh, by the IMF and to some extent the World Bank. There was a debt standstill, but they didn't have the same fiscal headroom that Western countries used to cushion the impact. But, you know, now the crisis is over, the sort of debt standstill is over, and actually, you know, they've got more money to pay back than they had before. And, you know, a lot of the short-term provisions of fresh credits are no longer available. And some of the promises, like that there would be a so-called SDR allocation, a special IMF currency, that would then be reallocated to poor countries has not completely founded, but has proved much slower to get started than people anticipated and has not enjoyed support in the US Congress and other key places. So, you know, there's a sense of an untended crisis just getting worse. And for poor countries, a very strong sense, both in the presidential palaces, but also on the streets, that they've lost control of their economic destiny, that it rests outside their control in the hands of creditors, public and private, in many cases, Chinese lenders who've funded new infrastructure in their countries at extortionate interest rates in certain occasions, and that put all this together, and you've got a sense of grievance and hostility, which had been fanned right through the crisis by issues like the inequity of vaccine availability Mm -hmm. with poor countries. Uh, And there was already a high level of political protest. People forget that in the months leading up to the COVID emergency, there'd been sort of record levels of street demonstrations from Santiago, Chile at one end of the world, right through to Hong Kong at the other. And so much of it was around this growing sense of grievance against rising levels of inequality. So this sense of economic squeeze on the great bulk of populations in so many places was being profoundly felt before the crisis. And now you come back at the end of it with the situations worsened by COVID itself. Mm. And so, you know, that perfect storm continues to build. It really is a perfect storm, isn't it? General inflation, interest rates, food shortage, the war in Ukraine, COVID, energy prices are sky high. That in turn affects food prices again and inflation. It's a spiral or a vortex, uh, to use your word, of bad news, uh, all of which leads to political instability, a sense of inequality, anger on the streets. Before people actually listen to this and now switch off because we're depressing them, this is Global Reboot, and uh, we we do always try to push towards solutions. So let's do that. I, how does the world and the international community and international organizations best help out the likes of countries that are debt-stressed? How do we help the likes of Sri Lanka, Ghana, Egypt, Pakistan? 
Well, I think there's both the short term and the long term. And in the short term, the IMF, for example, is had a team in Sri Lanka trying to put a program together. But its ability to proceed is handicapped by the political situation. And it's going to make it correctly very hard for that IMF agreement to proceed. And so as this levels of turbulence grow, it's getting harder to move some of these deals ahead. But there are a number of instruments available from the need to go back to a COVID era debt suspension for many countries, probably for three years, which I would add is non-inflationary if it's a standstill rather than a cancellation. It needs to be combined with fresh grant finance. And there are proposals in the works which the World Bank management doesn't like, but its government shareholders are rather keen on, to increase the bank's capital adequacy to allow it to double or triple its lending, and probably to see other multilateral development banks able to do the same. And then there's this issue of SDRs and getting more allocated to uh, poor and middle-income countries. And so you've got those measures which can offer, if well-managed, a lot of short-term relief over the next few years. But you then kind of have a longer-term piece, which is to recognize that this sort of international financial architecture is simply no longer fit for purpose. They are dealing with structures, policies, staff and culture, which came from an earlier era of almost sort of punishing and applying austerity to countries, which really instead need strategies which work with governments, good governments, mind you, to really put in place more expansionary financing plans intended to help these countries green transition, but also meeting the broader set of sustainable development goals. And that's a very different IMF. That's not the IMF our parents knew, or even frankly, someone of my generation knew. And similarly on the World Bank, it's got to be booted out of its rather cautious place now and made into a much more dynamic, proactive institution. And you're not going to get that without not just fundamental changes in policies and priorities, but a shift in ownership. These have been donor institutions born out of the era of colonialism, essentially, and reflect in many ways that sort of distribution of economic power, donors and beneficiaries. And we need to refashion this international financial system much more around a cooperative principle of a similar say for all countries on many issues. And I think it's perhaps worth adding that, you know, people say, well, in this world where China and the US are at each other's throats, you know, how's that possible? And I think, you know, on a whole range of political and security issues, to find a way to sort of bury the hatchet between China and the US isn't plausible or possible. But on economic issues, I think, we have to remind both sides that there are no two bigger stakeholders in global prosperity than these two economies. And therefore, it's in both their interests to participate in a reboot of the international financial system, which enables the global economy to get put on a path to sustained and sustainable growth. Well, I have to ask you, Mark, because I mean, and you've worked at the World Bank, you've worked at the UN and the UNDP, obviously. How feasible is it to sort of try and change these institutions? Because I mean, they were born in a moment where the world was being refashioned. 
and the world has changed. Part of the way these systems were designed, I mean, with veto powers at the UN, it was kind of designed to not let anyone else in. It was kind of designed to maintain power, not just to go along with the collaborative approach you're describing. Well, I think that's right. And, you know, you see at the UN, for example, a huge push by many countries to try and rebalance power towards the General Assembly and away from the Security Council, which is viewed mm. as the place where the victors of the Second World War still exercise a veto. But to be honest, in the UN, love it though I do, and it's where I spent much of my adult life, I worry that the political gridlock and the gridlock around security issues is so great that the UN is going to hibernate on politics, security, and human rights in the coming years, and that you know it'll have a role on humanitarian activities, it'll have a role in its sort of conference services department, we'll be busy organizing meetings where everybody can groan about the state of the world. But you know, it's it's hard to see a reflow of political authority to the UN in this divided world. Mm. I feel rather different about the Washington International Financial Institutions, partly because they've always so the IMF, the, the IMF, Bank, and the World Bank—they've, you know, and, and potentially, potentially, but more difficult, the World Trade Organization in, in in Geneva. You know, they've always been seen as more technical. Their mission is about economics and finance and trade. In the case of the WTO, and it sort of gives them a little bit of protection against this you know, political clash that you see in New York in the UN institutions, and. Again, as I say, I think it's going to need some economic statesmanship, but I think there may be a slim path, a thin path, precarious one, in which it may be possible to start laying out a increasingly ambitious economic reform agenda for these institutions because of that global shared concern about getting back to prosperity and growth. It hurts us all when the world economy is foundering in the way it is at the moment. And so we may be able to frame the reforms as, on the one hand, technocratic, but on the other hand, about people and their economic security in a way that it's a bit harder for governments to object to. Hmm. I mean, is it fair to say, given everything you're saying, is there a sense within these organizations, the, the financial institutions, that they're not serving the world as they should? Uh, Ravi, I think that's spot on. I mean, I think these institutions have in many ways for years and decades followed donor agendas rather than developing country agendas. And I felt this very sharply. I loved working at the World Bank. But when I went instead to work at the UN Development Programme, you know, I found a different set of owners and masters, if I can put it that way. Mm -hmm. But there was an enabling sense of developing country ownership, which empowered our work in a very exciting way. And I don't want to put the UN up as a, you know, any kind of model for virtue on this, but I think this issue of cooperative as against donor ownership of these institutions, you know, is a key point if we're to kind of get the buy-in and consent mm -hmm. to a coordinated global or what I've called Marshall Plan, where, you know, I look at some of these problems we have ahead and, you know, they are huge. Um, my foundation, the Open Society Foundation, works with grantees in South Africa on the 
so-called just energy transition there, which is now being followed. Similar plans are developing in Indonesia, Vietnam, potentially down the road in India and some other places. And in South Africa, it's going to take 2 to 3% of GDP over 30 years. And, you know, that's got to come from a level of international financing as well as domestic resource mobilization and an attraction of new private investment on a scale and level that we've not seen in the world before. And so, you know, at a very time when actually aid is being retrenched and development spending pulled back and countries are turning in on their own domestic concerns, etc., we've got to find the mechanisms for this big, ambitious, global push of the kind that America led after the Second World War and at a scale which current aid levels, you know, just don't imagine and envisage. I mean, you know, we all talk about this 0.7 target that a few countries have met in terms of their ODA, their official development assistance. Well, what we're really talking is about developing and developed countries alike, looking mm-hmm. at something much closer to 2 to 3% of their GDP pooled through not just public instruments, private investment as well, to create a kind of global war chest of a level of ambition that the world's not seen. And look, there's no getting around it. It's an ambitious thing to call for, you know, at a time of retrenchment and political retreat. But it's part of that global struggle for the the kind of international system which works for everybody. One of the things I keep imagining as you're talking is how would this happen? And it occurs to me that when you describe donors, the donors are changing as countries in the global south become richer. And maybe we haven't reached that moment yet, but you know, in about 10 or 15 years, India will be among the, the top three economies in the world. Indonesia would have entered the top 10. Uh, you'll see the likes of Nigeria, maybe even Bangladesh, uh, jump into the top uh, 15, 20. That means that these countries could become bigger players, bigger donors, bigger stakeholders in these international organizations. Do you think that would spur more of the kinds of collaborative changes you're describing to make the likes of the IMF and the World Bank less top-down? I think it will, but if you wait till that happens, you know, you're kind of too late because we can't wait for the economic and demographic shift to happen first and then make these changes. It happens to, needs to happen now so that there is pre-investment in those changes. I mean, I think, you know, Africa, for example is at a very interesting hinge point. Either this youth bulge gets away from it and there is massive youth unemployment and it leads into increasing levels of impoverishment, increasing migration pressures, the huge burden on the fragile environment of the continent with more deforestation, more uncontrolled urban growth, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, more pollution, you know, or the pre-investment to create the employment base uh, for Africa to meet the employment needs of a young population and increase its share of global GDP. And that's repeated in South Asia. And, you know, Bangladesh is an interesting example of progress in that regard. It's Mm. still in some ways a quite troubled country uh, politically, although it would resist that label. But 
it has had solid economic growth in recent years. But at the same time, you're seeing the rise of new environmental ills. I mean, there's a huge unmet development need building in these countries. And, you know, for us as a human rights and democracy foundation, we see where that goes. If democratic systems can't deliver for people if the sort of efficacy of service provision for people falls away, then the turn to populism, authoritarianism, other forms of non-democratic government. We've seen the playbook. You know, the implications are huge for the kind of world that's going to come out of this. What would it take? I mean, obviously, people react to crises. Crises sometimes bring out the best in us. Is it your sense that some of the reforms you're describing will happen? Or do you think it needs a push of some sort? I think it needs a push. I think the self-interest case that this needs to happen is very clear, but it's not where the political compass is in most countries at the moment. You know, you've got Europe battling both on the Ukraine front, but domestic energy prices, inflation, stressed government revenues. You've got in the US a political leadership which is looking over its shoulder at the return of Donald Trump and the potential loss of democratic majorities in Congress. And so you've got the natural leaders of the past of this kind of issues, you know, very much hiding behind their own white picket fences, dealing with their domestic problems. So I think it does force what you said earlier, Ravi, in a way, a turn to new leaders. And it's a happy coincidence that the G20 is led at the moment by Indonesia, because, you know, again, a big developing country with all the problems I've been touching on, but with huge ambitions about its role in the world. So it's going to be a very mixed picture of some brave voices raising the need for this, supported by, I think, a lot of agitation from civil society and other developing countries actually you know, falling into crisis. Well, let's hope people are listening. Mark Malik-Brown, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Ravi. My thanks to Mark Malik-Brown, the president of Open Society Foundations. Thanks for listening to Global Reboot. I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. Our podcast is a partnership between Foreign Policy and Doha Forum. Our production staff includes Rosie Julin, Dan Efron, and Anissa Pazeshki. If you're interested in smart geopolitical news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing to Foreign Policy. Global Reboot listeners can save 15% on a subscription. Go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe, enter the code REBOOT at checkout. Coming up next week, how to reboot American foreign policy, or at least how to rethink America's role in the world. Frankly, this administration has rather odd practice of putting forward almost every nice sounding frame for American foreign policy and pretending as though they're not in contradiction. That is Stephen Wertheim, the author of Tomorrow the World. Stephen's a terrific thinker about America's role in the world. You will not want to miss his take. That is next week on Global Reboot. I'm Ravi Agrawal. Thanks for listening.